Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. Today we'll be discussing UFO history. In popular culture, the term UFO or unidentified flying object refers to a suspected alien spacecraft. Although its definition encompasses any unexplained aerial phenomena, UFO sightings have been reported throughout the recorded history and in various parts of the world, raising questions about life on other planets and whether extraterrestrials have visited Earth. They became a major subject of interest and inspiration behind numerous films, books following the development of rocketry after World War II. Currently, we have listeners in five countries and are growing all the time. Sometimes I think we take for granted the awareness of the history of UFO sightings by a younger generation, and as technology brings the countries of our world closer than ever, the awareness of the story by those folks as well. So let's kind of sum up what we do know. Welcome back, Deb. We're talking flying saucers today. Yay, Deb. Let's I mean, talk flying saucers. You know I'm excited. I know you are. It's one of my favorite topics of conversation, even though, you know, we're going to discuss today what we don't know, but uh, just kind of, a, like I said, kind of a history so that, you know, everybody, you know, knows what's been going on up to this point. So would you like me to talk about flying saucers? Why don't you start talking about some flying saucer stuff? About the first well-known UFO sightings occurred in 1947 when businessman Kenneth Arnold claimed to see a group of nine high-speed objects near Mount Rainier in Washington while flying his small plane. We're going to talk a little yeah. more about Mr. Arnold. Mr. Arnold's going to be discussed he, probably about three times throughout this he segment. He comes up a lot. He estimated the speed of the crescent-shaped objects as several thousand miles per hour and said they moved like saucers skipping on water. In the newspaper report that followed, it was mistakenly stated that the objects were saucer-shaped, which began the term flying saucer. So that's that's where it began. That's where the term flying saucer began, why it began, Just in case everybody was wondering. Up next, we're going to talk about the Roswell UFO incident, which has been beat to death by news and folklore and everything else. Um, so we're going to kind of go over it. And uh, for those, there are those out there I know that really aren't familiar with the story. So we'll kind of do a rundown. Kind of start at the beginning. Yep, that's where it began. One morning around Independence Day, 1947. Independence Day? Okay. About 75 miles from the town of Roswell, New Mexico, a rancher named Mac Brazel found something unusual in a sheep pasture. A mess of metallic sticks held together by tape, chunks of plastic and foil reflectors, and scraps of a heavy, glossy, paper-like material. Now, tape, I don't think, you know, aliens, like you said. Um, Stop by the dollar store. Dollar stores, pick up some tape, you know, just something old to ship together. I mean, that, that, that segment there was probably put together by somebody who was trying to lean people towards one side of the story or another. Anyway, unable to identify the strange objects, Rachel called Roswell Sheriff. The sheriff in turn called officials at the nearby Roswell Army Air Force Base. Soldiers fanned out across Basil, Brazel's field, gathering the mysterious debris and whisking it away in armored trucks. Although officials from the local Air Force Base asserted that it was a crashed weather balloon, Many people believed it was the remains of an extraterrestrial flying saucer, a series of secret dummy drops in New Mexico during the 1950s heightened their suspicions. 
The flames of conspiracy were further fanned in the 1950s when the dummies with latex skin and aluminum bones that looked eerily like aliens fell from the sky across New Mexico and were hurriedly picked up by military vehicles. To those who believed in the earlier Roswell sightings, this seemed to be like a government cover-up. For the Air Force, these dummies were a way to test new ways for pilots to survive falls, which we'll kind of go over in a little bit. Like in the latex skin and aluminum bones? Yeah, it's, I mean, there was the, it was discussed by witnesses, the debris field was phenomenally large but, and... But what was, what would sending a dummy out of a plane teach you about how to survive a fall? They had mechanisms and they wanted to make it look like a person and had, allegedly, they had mechanisms inside the, the body you know, to um, log the various, you know, uh, atmospheric conditions that would be, um, a person would be subjected to. Because it's not like they were wearing a special suit that might help them. No, and it's... Survive a fall. Yeah, but there's, I mean, they, you know, people jump out of aircraft and they have a special uh, military, um, I don't know if it's Air Force or Army, but they'll jump from huge I forget what they call it. they have a term for it huge just way the hell up and they'll jump down and parachute okay. it's crazy 50 years later the military issued a subsequent statement admitting that the roswell wreckage was part of project mogul the project mogul team invented a number of high-tech materials for its balloons and other equipment including ultra lightweight and ultra strong metals fiber optic cables, and fireproof fabrics. This is part of the reason why some people who saw the debris thought it came from outer space. It didn't look or behave like anything they'd ever seen. Many of these materials are still in use today, which we think fiber optics are something that it's been discussed that fiber optics were something that we got from alien spacecraft. Because in the 50s, between the 50s and the 60s, I mean, technology just went explosive. Right. So... I mean, it stands to reason that we all of a sudden got this technology from somewhere else. That's a scary thought. It turned out that the Army knew more about Brazel's flying saucer than it led on. Since World War II, a group of geophysicists and oceanographers from Columbia University, New York University, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution on Cape Cod had been working on seven working on a top-secret atomic espionage project at New Mexico's Alamogordo airfield that they called Project Mogul. I mean, and that's kind of what, when we're talking about when did the saucers start coming around, and now we're seeing that now we're just starting this nuclear program probably, and then they're curious, wherever they came from, did they come from outer space? Did they come from inner earth? Did they come from under the ocean? Wherever these things are coming from, all of a sudden they're saying, maybe they came from the future, they're saying, this is the point which we freaking destroyed ourselves. Let's try to push a little something different. I mean, that's just, it could be a, a theory, but, you know. Anyway, Project Modal used the high, uh, used the sturdy high altitude balloons to carry low frequency sound system sensors this is the same thing we were talking about with the dummies and in into the tropopause a faraway part of the earth's atmosphere that acts as a sound channel 
In this part of the atmosphere, sound waves can travel for thousands of miles without interference, much like under the ocean. The scientists believe that if they sent microphones into the sound channel, they would be able to eavesdrop on nuclear tests as far away as the Soviet Union. So again, everybody, it's not just us. Other places they're doing, well, other places, the Soviet Union was, um, you know, doing their um, nuclear research. Well, according to the U.S. military, the debris in Brazel's field outside Roswell actually belonged to Project Mogul. It was the remains of a 700-foot-long string of neoprene balloons, radar reflectors, which were used for tracking, and sonic equipment that the scientists had launched from the Alamo Gordo base in June and that had evidently crashed in early July 1947. Again, what, it took a week at least to get from, to go across one state? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, Maybe there was no wind. <laughs> in the trump of whatever sphere. The troposphere. The, yeah, what the wind, I think it's a little faster even up there, the jet and stream. If it, I mean, if it got that far up, because normally these guys, you know, hit a power line, short out power in the neighborhood for a while, and then yeah. kill some birds or, you know, the fish in the ocean. Yeah. Well, down there, they just, the thing was in the middle of nowhere when it right. crashed, but they said that there's so much debris, it couldn't possibly... And what, the balloon came down and, like, exploded? It's 700 feet of balloons. Yeah, but it, when it came, okay, so the, so let's say the thing came down out of the clouds. Right. You know, from the trump of whatever sphere. And, you know, all of a sudden decides to crash right there near Roswell. And there was this debris field. And every time they show the debris field from what the witnesses said, that it, the thing was in literally in pieces. And there was parts of this thing scattered across. Then they say debris field. A balloon's gonna, a balloon's gonna pop or whatever. And did all of them pop and just land? Maybe the sheep didn't. Yeah, the sheep, and then the sheep ripped them apart yeah. after they went in there. So you know, I don't know. Um, so yeah. Well, I go because the project was highly classified, no one at the Roswell Army Airfield even knew that it existed. Uh, and they had no idea what to make of the objects Brazil had found. In fact, some officials on the base were worried that the wreckage had come from a Russian spy plane or satellite, information they were understandably reluctant to share with the public. The weather balloon story, flimsy though it was, was the simplest and most plausible explanation they could come up with on short notice. Meanwhile, to protect the scientists' secret project, no one at Alamo, Alamo Gordo could step in and clear up the confusion. Uh -uh. Yeah. So Roswell and flying saucerism today. Today, many people continue to believe that the government and the military are covering up the truth about alien landings at and around Roswell. In 1994, the Pentagon declassified most of the files on Project Mogul and the dummy drops, and the Federal General Accounting Office produced a report, Report of Air Force Research regarding the Roswell incident, designed to debunk these rumors. Nevertheless, there are still people who subscribe to the UFO theory, and hundreds of thousands of curiosity seekers visit Roswell and the crash site every year, hoping to find the truth for themselves. And yes, we'll be going. Or at least a t-shirt. I'm, like, I'm going to get my t-shirt with the big green alien and the big black eyes. Got to get your little green alien to bring it home. That's right. That's right. Add to your collection. In the Soviet Union, sightings, and we'll just throw this in, in the Soviet Union, sightings of UFOs were often prompted by tests of secret military rockets. So, Project Blue Book. 
It's a TV show. Yes, a TV show that we started to watch and that because I've just been, Project Blue Book's been my life for so many years. You, you I, I just feel like, <laughs> I just, I just feel like I lived it. I, I'm just, it's, you know, I, they, they, and it's, it's a good show. I don't want to, I don't want to put the show down. It just wasn't something. I, well, I mean, we'll, we'll give it another, we'll, I think we'll give it another try from the beginning. Yeah. You weren't really, I mean, that wasn't really a thing it, because of the fact that it goes off on these weird. We'll try it. Yeah. I, I, I think, it, I think it's worth doing another watch. Well, sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena increased, and in 1948, the U.S. Air Force began an investigation of these reports that they called Project Sign. Cold War tension was mounting, and the initial opinion of those involved with the project was that UFOs were most likely sophisticated Soviet aircraft, although some researchers, researchers suggested that they might be spacecraft from other worlds, the so-called extraterrestrial hypotheses or ETH, which we will use that later. And also there was Project Saucer in the book I'm reading, and I've, I've mentioned this in previous episodes, UFOs Are Real by Donald Kehoe. Um, he was an officer in the military assigned to investigating the, the phenomena of um, the UFO phenomena. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely Saucer was in there. Saucer's not a very, Project Saucer was not a, you don't see that as much as Blue Book, but it is out there. I'm not sure why I looked it up and it isn't a very prominent, but still did kind of the same thing. Well, within a year, Project Sign was succeeded by Project Grudge, which in 1952 was itself replaced by the longest lived of the official inquiries into UFOs, Project Blue Book. It was headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. From 1952 to 69, Project Blue Book compiled reports of more than 12,000 sightings or events, each of which was ultimately classified as one identified with a known astronomical, atmospheric, or artificial human-caused phenomenon, or two, unidentified. The latter category, approximately 6% of the total, included cases for which there was insufficient information to make it, um, to explain it. Um, in June of 1947, while flying a small plane, businessman and civilian pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing nine objects moving at high speeds through the skies, and we've talked about him before, over Washington's Mount Rainier. Widely publicized reports of Arnold's experience, followed by an increasing number of reported UFO sightings, led the U.S. Air Force to begin an investigation into the sightings called Operation Sign in 1948. Yeah, this we're going to talk about, he's, well, he's going to be mentioned a few times as we go through this, because as we talk about a different category, he's in a different, you know, mm -hmm. he's brought in. So it's unfortunately we're going to, but, or fortunately it, it kind of gives us a good um, vision of the time frame that everything is. The initial investigation resulted in the formation of project blue book in 1952. That project became the longest running of the U S government's official inquiries into UFO sightings compiling more than 12,000 sightings or related events from 1952 to its dismantling in 1969. In the early sightings, though reports of mysterious flying objects often attributed to spirits, angels, phantoms, ghosts, or other supernatural phenomena, 
have existed for centuries. World War II and the accompanying development of rocket science marked a new level of interest in what would officially become known as unidentified flying objects. The first well-known UFO sighting occurred in 1947 in June when civilian pilot, here we thought, here's, here's Kenneth Arnold again, reported seeing the nine objects in V formations on Rainier. Um, did you know that uh, Kenneth Arnold compared the movements of the nine mysterious objects? Okay. We know that he kind of coined the phrase flying saucer, so um, we don't need to go into that again. So then we, there was a formation of Project Blue Book and the uh, Robertson panel. The Air Force's UFO-related inquiries took place against a backdrop of, backdrop of frenzied popular interest in the strange flying objects, which reached its peak soon after Project Blue Book began in 1951. As we said, it was um, headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and it became the longest running of the U.S. government's official inquiries into UFOs. Alarmed by the striking number of UFO sightings reported in 1952, the administration of President Harry S. Truman feared an outbreak of hysteria over the issue in 1953. The um, Central Intelligence Agency responded to those fear by, fears by assembling an expert panel of scientists headed by physicist H.P. Robertson of the California Institute of Technology to discuss the UFO issue. The panel concluded that there was no basis for so-called extraterrestrial hypotheses and that UFOs pose no security threat. The Robertson panel and the Condon report, another aspect of history, an American obsession with the UFO phenomenon was underway in the hot summer of 1952. A provocative series of radar and visual sightings occurred near National Airport in Washington, D.C. Although these events were attributed to temperature inversions in the air over the city, of course they were, not everyone was convinced by this explanation. Hey, you look up there, I see this, and oh, that was a temperature inversion. Yeah. Well, yeah, you see the temperature change when you look up. Well, back in the well, back in the 50s, they could tell you anything, and you'd be like, yeah, okay, you know, I guess that's, you know, they know more than, we, the whole attitude was, well, the government knows more than we do, so obviously that's what it was. Meanwhile, the number of UFO reports had climbed to a record high. I think more people were looking up. Holy shit. <laughs> well, we put planes up there. So yeah. Look up. This led the Central Intelligence the CIA, to prompt the U.S. government to establish an expert panel of scientists to investigate the phenomenon. The panel was headed by H.P. Robertson, a physicist at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California, and included other physicists and astronomer, uh, physicists and astronomer and a rocket engineer. When the Robertson panel met for three days in 1953, they interviewed military officers and the head of Project Blue Book. They also reviewed films and photographs of UFOs. Their conclusions were that, one, 90% of the sightings could be easily attributed to astronomical or meteorological phenomena, i.e. bright planets and stars, meteors, auroras, ion clouds, or to such earthly objects as aircraft, balloons, birds, and searchlights. Two, there was no obvious security threat. And three, there was no evidence to support the ETH. Parts of the panel's report were kept classified until 1979. And this long period of secrecy helped fuel suspicions of a government cover-up. A second committee was set up in 1966 at the request of the Air Force to review the most interesting material 
gathered by Project Blue Book. Two years later, this committee, which made a detailed study of 59 UFO sightings, released its results as Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects, also known as the Condon Report, named by Edward U. Condon, the physicist who headed the investigation. The Condon Report was revealed by a special committee of the National Academy of Sciences. A total of 37 scientists wrote chapters or parts of chapters for this report, which covered investigations of the 59 UFO sightings in detail. Like the Robertson panel, the committee concluded there was no evidence of anything other than commonplace phenomena in the reports and that UFOs did not warrant further investigation. This together with a decline in sighting activity led to the dismantling of Project Blue Book in 1969. The Condon Report. Over the next 17 years, Project Blue Book would compile reports of 12,618 UFO sightings or related events. Similar, similarly to the Robertson panel, Blue Book would eventually classify more than 90% of these as identified, meaning they were caused by known astronomical, atmospheric, or artificial man-made phenomenon. The remaining 700 incidents remained unidentified. These included cases in which there was insufficient information to assign the event a known cause. In 1966, the Air Force had requested the formation of another committee to look into the... They, they, don't, they keep saying that there's nothing to There's study, nothing to look at. And yet they keep studying <laughs> they keep studying. Because there's people out there going, I'm telling you, I saw this stuff. And they're like, no, it's Venus. No, it's a gas cloud. No, you're not seeing it. You're seeing all this other stuff. And all these people work for the government. They don't have any private, and you know, they would never back in the 50s, but put a private, you know, yeah. any, any private. Any citizen in yeah, charge any of citizen this. Any citizen in charge of this. No, it's because the, gov the government signed. We're only going to tell you what we want you to know. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to even give you an inkling, but they keep, they keep coming back with, you know, more investigations. Well, now this, this new committee is going to look into details of 59 of the UFO sightings that were originally investigated by Project Blue Book. This committee was headed by Dr. Edward Condon, and it was based at the University of Colorado. It released its scientific study of unidentified flying objects, better known as the Condon Report, in 1968. According to this report, the sightings they examined showed no evidence of any unusual activity and recommended that the Air Force stop investigations into UFO-related incidents. <laughs> In 1969, in response to the Condon Report, as well as the declining number of UFO sightings, Project Blue Book was officially brought to an end. Among its conclusions were that of the sightings categorized as unidentified. There was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that they were the result of technology beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge or that they were extraterrestrial vehicles. Well, you said that in the Blue Book Report, you said that in the Condon. You keep saying it and then... Well, it's important to note that UFOs have been reported in the private sector the entire time, private pilots, which you can't take away a private, you could technically take away a private pilot's license by saying he's insane, he keeps seeing stuff. But, you know, Air Force pilots, fighter pilots, well-known fighter pilots have seen these things. Um, and then they get back to their base, they report it, and they're told, you didn't see that, and... Stop talking about it. And then you get airline pilots, same thing. They see it. The co-pilot sees it. 
I don't know if passengers have been reported seeing the same thing specifically, but then they get back, their company tells them, you didn't see that and quit talking about it, or you're going to get your flight status pulled. It just, you know, the people just be, get, I don't know how long they, they figured it. I guess these things will just go away. Well, but they won't. And they won't. And really they haven't been, I mean, I haven't, you know, I've seen some weird stuff myself, but you know, enough to think they're out there. I don't know what they're doing and why. I just don't know why you're with the technology and personal technology we have, such as our cell phones, that people, I mean, you see this stuff on TikTok and everything else, but I mean, you know, crash UFO, you walk up with your phone on its camera and you walk up there, you know, the aliens are on the ground dead or whatever, and we haven't seen any. I don't know, are they being... Could, is it possible that they could be pulled out of there that fast after it gets up? Maybe they I know they can track things by, you know, people, you know, texts and communications. Maybe they're monitoring that. I mean, that's real paranoid, but, um, you know, could it be possible that they're, but are they really, and really they shouldn't be crashing all over the place with the, this technology. I don't, you know. Would you like me to talk about ufology? Yes. Can you talk about ufology? Ufology. <laughs> Ufology. <laughs> Ufology, the study of UFOs. Ufology. <laughs> well, despite the dismissive attitude expressed by the Connor Report and the subsequent dismantling of Project Blue Book, civilian, civilian investigations into UFOs continued as many ufologists were dissatisfied with the government's conclusions. In 1974, astronomy J. Allen Hynek who had served as an advisor to Project Blue Book, created the Center for UFO Studies, CUFOS. The organization continues to look into UFO sightings and to weigh the hypotheses that they could be evidence of extraterrestrial activity. In addition to UFO investigations conducted in the United States, similar work has been done over the years in other countries all over the world, including Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, Greece, and Sweden. In January 1979, the British House of Lords even held a three-hour-long debate on the subject of UFOs and a motion, which was eventually defeated, that the British government should make public what it knew about them. Now, why should they be any different than our government? That would be so cool to have listened to that debate, though. Yes. Because did they ever say what they knew? And I don't think anything was ever um, brought out in that Yeah, I don't think they talked about that. They just wanted it. But now it's been this many years. Can they debate that again and maybe, you know, give us some information? Because that would be... I think eventually it's going to come out. But what they said with this new thing, with the COVID, with, you know, the COVID... What is it? It's a bill that the president just signed that will require the government to release information on UFOs, which should be really interesting. Yeah, and what, how much is it? I mean, as we read into this, it's going to be interesting to see what they release, and is it something that we really haven't found? We haven't. We don't really know about from before. As we read through this entire thing, when it comes out, it's going to be like we've already talked about this. This isn't news, right? You know, I mean, was Roswell really an alien spacecraft? I think, I think the problem is, and it always has been that the government thinks people are going to just freak out and there's going to be anarchy if they find out that, holy crap, we, there really was aliens, there really was UFOs. Well, there are really, people that will. 
you know? Oh, of course there is, you know? And people freak out over nothing. They definitely will freak out over this. But, you know, I think we're at, we're at a stage now where I think we can accept the fact that this is happening. So, but I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff out there. Like, you know, they're, that, you know, our government's full of lizard-like, you know, they're really lizard-like creatures running the, running the government. I mean, that's out there. That's been in movies. Before. But, you know, it's, you know, it, I, I don't know. It's just, I would like to see some uh, transparency. But um, Area 51 is the next category here. And area, area, th this is another subject that's been, you know, with the, you know, Rush Area 51 or whatever it was and that we had some months back. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, we want to know what's in there. We know that, you know, Joe Rogan and, you know, um, Bob Lazar had the interview. Bob Lazar was the, um, who had been at S4, which was part of Area 51, and saw four or five UFOs and did some reverse engineering. Which This is a story I believe whole, wholeheartedly over all the others that they found, you know, they have UFOs. One of the UFOs being actually was actually buried somewhere that they were just digging some construction. The thing had been there for millennia. There's so many years that they they dug it out and they brought it to Area 51. But in the 50s and 60s, multiple UFO sightings were reported around Area 51 in Nevada, a site used um, variously by the CIA, U.S. Air Force, and Lockheed Martin to test flights of experimental aircraft or black aircraft. Declassified documents show Area 51 was home to a Cold War program. Max would like to chime in. Yeah, the dog is barking. Max. Uh, called Oxcart, dedicated to creating a spy plane that would be undetectable in the air and could be used to gather information behind the Iron Curtain. The resulting SR-71 Blackbird, my personal favorite, um, which isn't really flying anymore, the F-117 Nighthawk and the Archangel 12, A-12, traveled at speeds upwards of 2,000 miles an hour. These mysterious planes helped fuel rumors that Area 51 was used to conduct experiments on extraterrestrial life and other spacecraft. Other investigations of UFOs. Despite the failure of the ETH to make headway with the expert committees, a few scientists and engineers, most notably J. Allen Hynek, who was, as we know, an astronomer at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, who had been involved with projects Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, concluded that a small fraction of the most reliable UFO reports gave definite indications for the pres presence of extraterrestrial visitors. Aside from Project Blue Book, the only other official and fairly complete records of USO, UFO sightings were kept in Canada, where they were transferred in 1968 from the Canadian Department of National Defense to the Canadian National Research Council. A. 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 The Canadian records comprised about 750 sightings. Less complete records have been maintained in the United Kingdom, Sweden, Denmark, Australia, and Greece. In the United States, Kufos and the Mutual of UFO Network, or MUFON, which, which Doug I'm a is, card, I am a card-carrying member. Doug is a member in That's Bel right. Bellevue, Colorado, continue to log sightings reported by the public. You're just waiting to log in a site, aren't you? I, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on MUFON all the time. In the Soviet Union, sightings of UFOs were often prompted by tests of secret military rockets. 
In order to obscure the true nature of the tests, the government sometimes encouraged the public to believe these rockets might be extraterrestrial craft. But eventually this, they decided that the descriptions themselves might give away <laughs> too much information. Yeah. UFA, UFO sightings in China have been simil similarly provoked by military activity that's also unknown to the public. Then there's the possible explanations for UFO sightings and alien abductions. UFO reports have varied widely in reliability, as judged by the number of witnesses. Whether the witnesses were independent of each other, the observing conditions, i.e. ID in all, fog, haze, type of illumination, and the direction of sighting. Typically, witnesses who take the trouble to report a sighting consider the object to be of extraterrestrial origin or possibly a military craft, but certainly under intelligent control. This interference is usually based on what is perceived as formation flying by sets of objects, unnatural, often sudden motions, the lack of sound, changes in brightness or color, and strange shapes. That the unaided eye plays tricks is well known. A bright light, such as the planet Venus, often appears, often appears to move. I often mistake Venus for flying saucer. Of course you do. Astronomical aspects can also be disconcerting to drivers as they seem to follow the car. Visual impressions of distance and speed of UFOs are also highly unreliable because they are based on an assumed size and are often made against a blank sky with no background object, clouds, mountains, etc. to set a maximum distance. Reflections from windows and eyeglasses produce superimposed views and complex optical systems such as Camera lenses can turn point of sources of the light and apparently saucer-shaped phenomena. It happens all the time. Just you know, looking through my glasses and see a UFO. Such optical illusions and the psychological... Do you see UFOs in your glasses? You know, you all, you know, that's what they're saying. Their psychological desire to interpret images or accounts known or images are known to account for many visual UFO reports and at least some sightings are known to be hoaxes. Radar sightings, while in certain respects more reliable, fail to discriminate against artificial objects and meteor trails, ionized gas, rain, or thermal discontinuities in the atmosphere. Contact events such as abductions are often associated with UFOs because they are ascribed in the extraterrestrial visitors. However, the credibility of the ETH as an explanation for abductions is disputed by the most psychologists who have investigated this phenomenon. They suggest that a common experience known as sleep paralysis may be the culprit. As these cases, sleepers for experience temporary immobility and belief that they are being watched. And I'm going to have you go over it. Okay, a few we're going to talk right about now. some UFO history. We're looking at um, Lower Egypt in ancient Egypt, 1440 BC. According to this is the call it's a document called the Ptolemy Papyrus. Uh, the scribes of the Pharaoh Tutmos III reported that fiery disks were encountered floating over the skies. The Condon Committee actually reviewed these documents and disputed their legitimacy stating that Tully was taken in and the papyrus is a fake. 
And then we move to 218 BC and um, we're in the Roman Republic of Rome, Italy, when Livy, who's uh, an Italian philosopher, records a number of portents in the winter of this year, including what is in English translates to phantom ships had been seen gleaming in the sky. And then we go to 76 BC, where there's um, in the Roman Republic, the uh, event was called the spark from a falling star. According to Pliny the Elder, a spark fell from a star and grew as it descended until it appeared to be the size of the moon. And then it, just, it then ascended back up to the heavens and was transformed into a light. In 74 BC, we go to Pyresia, Asia. According to Plutarch, a Roman army commanded by Lucullus was about to begin a battle with Mithrates VI of Pontus when all on a sudden the sky burst asunder and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies. In shape, it was most like a wine jar and in color like molten silver. Plutarch reports the shape of the object as a wine jar. The apparently silver object was reported by both armies. Oh, that's interesting. This yeah, the historian uh, in 196 AD uh, in Rome, the historian Cassius Dio described a fine rain resembling silver descended from a clear sky upon the Forum of Augustus. He used some of the material to plate some of his bronze coins. But by the fourth day afterwards, the silvery coating was gone. That's freaky. That is weird enough. Now we're... 1561? Well, yeah, we, we, we're no longer... We're in a modern day. day. <laughs> we're after death. <laughs> That's right. Residents of Nuremberg saw what they described as an aerial battle, followed by the appearance of a large black triangular object and then a large crash outside the city. The broadsheet claims that witnesses observed hundreds of spheres, cylinders, and other odd-shaped objects that moved erratically overhead. Yeah, there was, I saw a painting of this, and it was yes. interesting. There was all kinds of, I mean, the, in the painting, the witness saw all kinds of different uh, shapes of these. I'll have to look that up. You know, it's a really cool painting. Okay, would you like to go to, we can go yeah, to 1803. And we're not reading every single one of these. We're kind of skipping yeah, there's, to the more interesting. There's some very, you know, just mundane sightings. And these aren't every, I mean, this isn't every sighting that ever happened. There's hundreds of sightings happen all the time. These are things that were, you know, um, apparently important enough to note in, in history. Well, it's amazing. I mean, in ancient history, these made it into... Yeah. Um, live, now we're in Japan, February 22nd, or maybe March 24th, 1803. Somewhere, some, yeah. Somewhere in there. Uh, local fishermen reportedly saw a vessel drifting in close by waters. They say when they investigated it, a beautiful young woman they described as having red and white hair and dressed in strange clothes appeared. The fishermen claimed she held a square box that nobody was allowed to touch. And she spoke to them in a language they'd never heard before. Some UFO believers think this story was a credible document of a close encounter of the third kind in Japan. Historians and ethnologists consider it folklore. Then in 1883, on August 12th, the astronomer Jose Bonilla reported that he saw 
more than 300 dark unidentified objects crossing the sun disk while observing sunspot activity. At Zacatecas Observatory in Mexico, he was able to take several photographs exposing wet plates at one one hundredth of a second. It was subsequently determined that the objects were high flying geese. I, it's kind of weird because it's like, well, you didn't know those were birds. I would think he would have noticed that when he was. You know, and then reported it, as, and then went ahead and reported it as UFOs. You know, is just kind of a little bit bizarre. Well, then we go to 1940. We're in World War Two, and then the Foo Fighters, not the band, but that. Dave Grohl wasn't there. No, okay. Dave Grohl wasn't there, and we, you know, this and th and that's what they called the UFOs, uh, the um, pilots. They called them Foo Fighters. Oh, okay. Well, this saw small metallic spheres and colorful balls of light reported repeatedly spotted and occasionally photographed world war worldwide. By bomber crews all during World War Two. Yeah, and they think this is this has come up where they think it's kind of Saint Elmo's fire, or a buildup of a stat electrical static electricity on the wings and things, mm. and it would do it would build up and shoot off into this ball. They don't know that you know it was this or or whatever. But in '41 uh, in um, Missouri. Missouri, Cape Girardeau, Girardeau, um First responders at a and a Baptist minister allegedly viewed crashed spacecraft and bodies. I don't know if it was the crashed on some people or the body, you know, or the bodies in the spacecraft. But published in 1991, based on the minister's surviving grandchild. So oh, that must have been a great family story. Yeah. No. And then there's the Battle of Los Angeles, which I hear we're going to hear more about in You're, the future. Yeah, in the future, Robert, our our producer is going to take this um well we'll be discussing it with robert he likes this topic there's enough to carry us i think um through most of an episode but um well this was in 1942 and unidentified aerial objects trigger the firing of thousands of anti-aircraft mount rounds and raise the wartime alert status that is going to be a very interesting that topic. was a really phenomenal i mean it'll be the lead up we'll discuss a backstory and then a lead up and then whatever we can find out. And because this is LA, we'll be able to get a little, you know, not everything is going to be classified. We'll be able to get to that. In 46, we're going to Sweden. We're going to Sweden. Angaholm, Christianstad County. Sorry, Sweden. <laughs> I'm not Sweden. I'm, I'm, I know you guys are listening and I apologize for that. Um, Gosta Carl's, Send reports seeing a flying saucer and its alien passengers. A model of it now uh, is erected at the site. At the UFO memorial. At oh, the cool. in Engelholm. And it's actually, I've seen a picture of it online. And it's, as they say, the, the UFOs look like a kid's top, like we saw when mm -hmm. we were children. Um, you know, where they wind the thing up and it had that thing sticking up on yeah. the top. And it looks, it's, I guess, supposed to be an antenna, although I don't really... Hmm. know why a UFO would really have to have a thing sticking out the top of it, but I don't know how they work anyway, so, you know. Well, in 1947, in Puget Sound, Washington. Where you've been. I have been there. You it's didn't see any UFOs? It's a beautiful place, though. No, I was. Yeah, I've been there, too. It's, it's a nice. Gorgeous place. Um, Harold Dahl reported that his dog was killed and his son was injured by debris in an encounter with four to six flying donut-shaped objects. He also claimed that a witness was subsequently threatened by 
the, the men in black. Yeah, and that, that's the that's the thing that comes up is that the men in black come up and they try to dissuade you from whatever story you're coming up. I mean, they're the got that you, little thing make you forget everything. Got that little you, light. Yeah, they got that little. I see the little light. Yeah, that probably doubles as that thing that they spoke about out of that, that talking pug. Yeah, it, it, you know, and the, the stories of the men in black, and it's probably just government agents coming to do what they've been trying to do to everybody else. Hey, you didn't see that. That was, you know, swamp gas or whatever. So okay. then we, you know, Kenneth Arnold, who we've mentioned, you know, we know his story because we've talked about it probably three times throughout the, you know, as we went through the time. In 1947, yeah, then, then we have Roswell in 1947. Yeah, 47, the Roswell came up. And in 48, we go to Kentucky, where a U.S. Air Force sent a fighter pilot to investigate a UFO sighting over Fort Knox, Kentucky. His aircraft crashed, and the pilot was killed while pursuing the UFO. Chase yeah. Them. Should not chase them. Yeah, on um, men, as in the book I'm reading, Mantell had, was pursuing this thing up through the clouds. He got separated from the rest of his squadron, and he went up through the in through the clouds, obviously, this is, you know, they're not going to be able to, our people aren't going to be able to travel at a great deal of speed. But he um, he's chasing this thing, and whatever happened, his plane just disintegrated. They don't know if the thing shot him down. But we haven't really, we, we haven't yet talked about a time, although we see it on, I don't know how many times we've seen it on a science fiction movie where, the, you know, they're, they're shooting our planes down with these ray guns. You know, whatever they're using, it's like we have yet, and we've gone through these things, and I've yet to see an instance where, and maybe it's just not reported. Maybe it's like, well, it's top secret. You know, the ray gun shut down our our plane, but I don't think that they we can't catch them. They're too fast and maneuverable for us to catch them. And it's just probably a noose if it's for real, which I think it is. I think it's just a nuisance for them of us. It's they're they're looking into something, and we're just badgering them. You know, gnat. so it probably, yeah, like a little gnat. So it flies up into the sky, up into the clouds, and we might have, yeah. I would hope that it would have had enough telemetry to be able to understand that, you know, or a radar to know that our plane's getting close and maybe it should move so it wouldn't run into it. Don't it. Run into you. But it might have just slowed down kind of like when somebody's tailgating. It's just you. embarrassing. It's when like you, it's just that it brake stopped him. <laughs> Don't want to break check fight. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know, but I feel bad for the pilot. I don't know. They don't know what happened, and they are not giving up any information at all. So in uh, '48, in uh, New Mexico, another New Mexico. So um, an alleged retrieval of a grounded UFO and its occupants from a plateau in New Mexico. I mean, can these guys not? I mean, Roswell was '47, right? Yeah. And then in 48, another one crashes. I mean, what what have they got, like the student pilots? New Mexico is where they bring everybody to learn how to fly. They learn how to fly their UFOs, yeah. you know, they, with apparently they're crashing. So I'm assuming all the everything went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and is stored there in some gigantic warehouse. We like it. We need to get you in there. Indiana Jones. Oh, I'd love to have my way in that place. It would be awesome. Well, there's again somebody in Chile's in 1948, Chile's in Witted. Um, who are American commercial pilots reported that their airplane nearly collided with a UFO. Again. Yeah, but again, they just, yeah, they nearly collided. The UFO totally got away, but, just, you well, know. So in other words, drinking on duty got explained by, it was a UFO, yeah. I swear. 
Exactly. Well, in 48 again, there's a, they call it the Gorman dogfight. The U.S. Air Force pilot sighted and pursued a UFO for 27 minutes. I don't know. The thing might have went, yeah, look at this. It's following me. It's, we're heading for Canada. Yeah, exactly. Then in 1950, a farm near McMinnville, Oregon, this is another antenna on type, farmer took pictures of a purported flying saucer. These were the first claimed photographs of flying saucers since the coining of the term. And it, again, looks like a top. It's a weird little, of course, grainy, terrible picture that, you know, you can't, you can't, or can't really, it's, you can tell it's something like a UFO, but, you know. Well, in Great Falls, Montana, we're in, we're up to 1950 now. The manager of Great Falls pro baseball team took color film of two UFOs flying over Great Falls. The film was extensively analyzed by the U.S. Air Force and several independent investigators, but we don't know what they found. Yeah, I, I guess we're never going to have an answer. No report that we know of. Interesting. So in 51, in Lubbock, Texas, several lights in V-shaped formations were repeatedly spotted flying over the city. Witnesses included professors from Texas Tech University and photographed by a Texas Tech student. And we don't get to see that picture. No, we don't get to see that one. So in 1952 in Washington, D.C., um, there were a series of sightings in July of 52 accompanied um, radar contacts at three separate air airports in the Washington area. The sightings were made, they made front page headlines around the nation and ultimately led to the formation of the, the Robertson the panel Robertson by the Pan. CIA. Yep. You see what happened all prior to that, before we even got a chance to get around to having uh, put together you know, one of these panels and, you know, they've been doing it for, for a few years. I think it's, again, because we were, we were afraid, the government was afraid what was going to happen if we found out what was really going on out there. Um, in 52, at Haneda Air Force Base in Tokyo, U.S. Air Force tower operators at Haneda Air Force Base observed an unusually bright bluish-white light to their northeast, alerted the GCI radar unit at Shokroi, which then called for a scramble of an F-94 interceptor after getting radar returns in the same general area. GCI ground radar vectored the F-94 to an orbiting unknown target, which the F-94 picked up on the airborne radar. The target then accelerated out of the F-94's radar range after 90, after 90 seconds of pursuit. That was followed also on the Shokroi GCI radar. In 1952, in Flatwoods, West Virginia, six local boys and a woman reported seeing a UFO land and saw a spade-headed creature near the landing site. Oh, yeah. They found a creature. And then let's see where go to 19. So I want to talk about the three-headed creature. Okay, sorry. We I went to his, we, we went back in time. I lost his page. Stand stand by. We got back. We're going back in time. I'm not allowed to touch the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've we've done the baseball team. Where's the three-headed creature? Okay, here we go. This is the spade-headed creature. Yeah, the spade-headed three, not three-headed. Yeah, we're in Flatwoods, West Virginia. Six local boys in the one. Did you read the seeing the UFO land and yeah. saw a spade? I thought these yeah. were the three headed. No, it's a okay. spade headed. And then 
We go to Rapid City, South Dakota, and Bismarck, North Dakota. Over two nights, a red glowing light is witnessed by 45 people. Well, that's pretty interesting. Then in 1953, the disappearance of Felix Monclay and Robert Wilson, U.S. Air Force pilot and radar operator, and their F-89C disappeared while pursuing an unidentified radar, radar return. Yeah, there's a, a story at, um, that I made note of and won't be able to go over, but basically they were flying over, I think, Lake Superior, and they hit the, if it was, this is the one I'm thinking of, they actually hit the, yeah, Lake Superior. They ran into the flying, the UFO flying saucer, mm -hmm. and it, they both fell into Lake Superior, so they've been trying to, Oh, wow. uh, people have been trying to put together. They said they someone said that they found the the plane and the spacecraft, but I don't know. I think that after, we would have known by now. After seeing Lake Superior, it I know it's, uh, an it's ocean. like an ocean. It is. It's not really a lake. I mean, it is a lake, but it's, oh, it's crazy. In 1954, Stadio Artemio Franchi in Florence, Italy. Oh, we're going to Italy now. A football yep. game between Fiorentina and Pistoiese was underway at the Stadio Artemio Franchi. Wow. It's not like I'm just talking fake language. Italy, sorry. When a group, <laughs> I know, I know speak. When a group of UFOs traveling at high speed abruptly stopped over the stadium, the stadium became silent as the crowd of around 10,000 spectators witnessed the event and described the UFOs as cigar-shaped. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Then we got 1955, farmhouse nearing Hopkinsville, Kentucky. After the sighting of a disc-shaped aircraft, a group of strange goblin-like creatures are reported to have repeatedly approached a farmhouse and looked inside through the windows. Holy crap. Isn't this that science? Remembers yeah. of the two families present shot at them several times with little or no effect. The encounter lasted from evening till dawn. That's yeah, you're science. in Kentucky. You're going to get hit. Yeah, you're, you're going to get, get shot. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're a goblin or not. That's huh? right. And then in 1956, we go to South Africa, Drakensburg. A well-known photo series depicting a supposed UFO was taken on July 24th near Rosetta in the Drakensburg region. The photographer, meteorologist Elizabeth Clare claimed detailed adventures with an alien race. Besides having had an alien lover, Akon, Hello, Akon. who would have fathered her son, Ailing. Oh, that's got to be a good story. Oh, wow. That's interesting. In 1957, at East Anglia, United UK. Hi, UK. I know you've been listening in. U.S. Air Force fighter pilot Milton Torres reports that he was ordered to intercept and fire on a UFO displaying a very unusual flight patterns over East Anglia. Yeah, well, you know, when you're flying over East Anglia. That's a car, right? Is it Anglia a car? I thought it was a car. Uh, yeah. So then we've got, um, we're going to move up to 1978. We're in Poland. And a farmer, Emilson, in, <laughs> Emilson. In Emilson is said to have been inducted and medically examined by short green-faced humanoid entities speaking an unearthly language in a white hovering humming craft. There is now a memorial at that oh, site. Wow. 
and let's see, Victoria, Australia. Contacting air traffic control, an Australian pilot reported seeing a UFO before both he oh, and his aircraft vanished. Yeah, there's, I have the story on this. This guy was a UFO enthusiast, and it's surmised that he may have committed suicide. Or oh. not really suicide. He was trying to make himself disappear oh, okay. and stage this deal. There's a whole... Um, the whole radio conversation between him and the, the the tower he was closest to were seem a little staged. Yeah, it, it does seem it it does seem just a tad staged, you know. Um, and let's see, in 1981, get a little more modern here. Oh, in France, in France, retired contractor. Renato Nicolai said he saw a flight object shaped like two inverted bowls that left circular traces in the grass. Oh, crop, crop circles. Yeah. Let me see now. In the Soviet Union in 1986, inhabitants of a town, I'm not going to try to pronounce the town, watched know. a reddish ball which crashed into a mountain known as Height 611. Maybe it's just 611 feet high. I don't know. No, that's its name. Oh, oh. Um, yeah, I have, we have, we haven't, I haven't seen any downloads from the Soviet Florida. Union. Where's Florida? We go to Florida. 1987 Gulf Breeze UFO incident. Ed Walters, a building contractor, claimed to see a UFO and take photos of it. Uh, interesting. In 1989 in the Soviet Union, a group of youths claimed to have seen a UFO. Oh, and a three-eyed alien. Three-eyed alien? Three-eyed alien. Oh, that's interesting. In 1990, in Belgium, and I know Belgium, you're out there listening. We got a couple, couple of towns in your area. Reports of large, silent, low-flying black triangles, allegedly investigated by Belgium's military. And that's what I think Bob Lazar said that you know the, um, you know, was they're triangular shaped, three lights on the bottom, which are kind of a power source thing or a power emitter. Um, so the triangular lately, I, I don't know if they're, they're involved, like they started with the, they started with the ones that look like tops now, with, they're getting newer, well, like the, a newer with, version, with, you know, yeah. like they're the Corvette. Yeah. Well, then in 1991, the space shuttle Discovery while in orbit, uh, video was taken during mission STS-48, shows a flash of light and several objects apparently flying in an artificial or controlled fashion. NASA explained them as ice particles reacting to the engine jets. And so on and so forth, people. Well, there's, a, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of sightings. I'm sure many people out there have seen something. I mean, I've seen something unusual as well, although I can't put my hand on it. I didn't report mine. I mean, it was that looked like a triangle of stars with ships coming out of the stars, but you couldn't see behind it. It was really quite bizarre and unusual, but I didn't feel like I had enough information to really report anything. But um, this wraps up this episode. Thanks, Deb, for uh, joining us. Thank you, Doug. Catch us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Facebook at Alien Probe Podcast and on Instagram at Alien Probe Pod. Send your questions and comments at Alien Pro Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.